And welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Going for Two, presented by Homefield Apparel. I am your host, Matt Brown. I am the publisher of the Extra Points newsletter, and I'm joined here today, as always, by my colleague and co-host, Brian Fisher, as we uh, get ready here for the biggest college sports weekend-ish for multiple tournaments in, in a long time. Lots of lots of blue bloods, uh, as it were, right? Yeah, I mean, it certainly feels that way. I mean, what, you know, I almost thought I was like basketballed out after a, a pretty crazy elite eight on the men's side, but then the women's side just kind of followed it up. And, and it they was just bananas. Up, you know? It was absolutely bananas. I, uh, I missed most of the UConn game yesterday because bedtime and children and it was an absolute mess and i was a little bit bummed but fortunately i still was able to see like the everything after like halfway through the second overtime um and then kind of catching up like what a what just big shot after big shot like that that was that would definitely would have been the antidote to being basketballed out i mean of course i mean i don't know how you can't be excited about louisville like especially in the post-game interviews that's I, i was saying just make that the university seal translate it into latin put it up on billboards just go in the bleeping thing like I, I, if you can't, if you watch something like that and you're not moved at all, I feel like we're just not wired the same. I know I'm supposed to be like this big cynical reporter and everything, but when I see a crying athlete uh, that, that excited, I, I, it's pretty cool. Like I, I, you can't help but be moved a little bit. You, you can't. And I, I think it's going to set up for not only a terrific final four in New Orleans, but uh, I think the folks in Minneapolis are, are going to get some some good matchups. I mean, you, you look at South Carolina coming in there as well. All that they kind of have riding on this season. I mean, it, it's going to be a, a real interesting, I think, year for, for both the men and the women's side. I mean, you, all the storylines, you know, are, are just shaping up perfectly. You know, like you said, we're, we're, we're kind of old sports writers. And, and what do we root for? We root for the storyline. And, and man, they delivered this year in, in terms of the men's and women's basketball tournament. I mean, just overarching uh, storylines and really some some controversy, too, I think, on the on the women's side. I mean, uh, Tara Vanderveer was was kind of complaining about, uh, you know, some of the conditions there and they're not really being equity. And then uh, Corey Close, the UCLA coach, uh, kind of mentioning making light of uh, the fact that the uh, women's NIT is not exactly kind of up to the snuff compared to the men's NIT. I, I know there are some reasons behind that, but um, a little bit interesting that uh, that gender equity piece after so much celebrations, t- talking about having equal gift baskets and all that. And then it kind of comes rearing its ugly head here and in, in come final four time yeah there are some things with gender equity that are relatively quick to fix um i think to the ncaa's credit as i best understand it uh many of the uh the, in, the organizational silos for planning those two tournaments were torn down and and people involved in the men's and women's tournament actually talked on a more regular basis which hadn't happened before wonderful i'm glad that the swag bags are now equal, that the women are not being given 16 piece puzzles or like whatever it was, right? You know, compared to the men's side. Those are things that while important and useful can be turned around faster, but travel inequalities, counter inequalities, and then of course the financial ones, um, things that require reevaluating contracts and corporate partnerships or distributing money, um, that hasn't happened yet. And I understand that there are legal reasons for that, but I would be concerned that that gender equity report joins the long line of excellent, well-thought-out, well-researched PDFs that remain PDFs. Particularly, I, I've been thinking about this so much. I've written about it a bunch of times on Extra Points. It's It's been a, a major talking point about college basketball coverage with how transformational is it for a school to get these tournament units? And what what, what a windfall. What is what, what this means for a bunch of different, uh, you know, kind of sucks South Dakota doesn't get any of that. South Dakota State doesn't get doesn't get those for, for making the, the Sweet 16 or Belmont doesn't get any of those or any of these. Uh, there was a top Florida Gulf Coast doesn't get any of those. They lifted just as many weights at 430 in the morning and, and provided just, just the entertaining of a television spectacle. Like that sucks. This is the stuff that I hope gets addressed soon. And I hope more men, uh, particularly male administrators, start pushing for that, too, because I don't think it's fair that's always the Patriot League, or it's always Val Ackerman, or it's always, you know, the A-10 that has to, that's given the mic. I'm like, well, it's a women's issue, so we should give it to the women's administrator. We should see more dudes who are running leagues say, actually, we need to fix this. You know what I mean? I completely agree. And I think it's it's going to end up happening some in some form or fashion. You know, I, I think the, the concept of units, uh, I think the whole revenue structure really for both the men and the women's side is, is certainly being examined right now. I think it's going to change. And I think uh, some sort of performance based 
uh, you know, units or, or uh, whatever they're going to term it, you know, kind of in the near future is, is going to end up happening um, on, on both the men and women's side. I think it's obviously you're, you're probably going to have your revenue splits be a, l- a little bit lower, certainly on the women's side, just because it does bring in, um, you know, less less money. But uh, and I think everybody kind of understands that it is is at least uh, understanding that, uh, you know, those those values might be different, but at least it is something, you know, to to certainly have some equity uh, in terms of uh, what you can go out and earn on the court. And uh, I think that's one of the things that not only the, the men and women's basketball oversight committees are looking at, but uh, the, the D1 transformation committee. I mean, we, we've talked quite a bit about uh, what does yep. the future of D1 look like? And there's there's going to be some changes in terms of uh, how those those units are getting paid out and uh, how that money is kind of flowing down the uh, the pyramid, if you will. I want to talk a little bit about some transfer about potential transformation today. There's there's a couple maybe there's some more fun basketball things we can we can get into, but there was one news story that was off the St. Peter's beat and off the NIL beat where I've kind of uh, been laser focused these past couple of days that caught my attention. I think I, I know you saw this too. This was coming from Congress, and most of what we've seen from congressional lawmakers uh, proposing bills or are wanting to be involved in college athletics regulation. Most of that over the last year has come from a handful of congressional Democrats uh, who who have been most emotionally invested in and and policy invested in holistic change in college sports. Before that, you had a handful of Senate Republicans that that, that proposed some some really narrow NIL-related bills, but not a whole lot has been bipartisan in terms of actual proposed legislation. The interest in beating up the NCAA or in changing uh, college athletics or even supporting NIL, that really is pretty bipartisan, uh, but not a, a ton, with some exceptions, not a ton in terms of proposed legislation. But that changed on Tuesday when a, a new proposed bill from Cory Booker, a Democrat from New Jersey, former college football player, somebody who has been extremely active in college athletics reform legislation, and Marsha Blackburn, a Republican from Tennessee, someone who hasn't, with one pointed exception, Senator Blackburn hates the NCAA. And I do not doubt that that uh, dislike is um, born out of actual lived experience and not political expediency. But if you wanted to win some points in Tennessee, well, Tennessee is being investigated by the NCAA, and now so is Memphis. So there's that's one thing that most people in the state can agree upon. The NCAA sucks. This bill, proposed bill, is not one that's focused on NIL. It's not focused on athlete labor. It's not focused on collective bargaining rights or health insurance or a lot of the other factors that have been touching with uh, political involvement in college athletics. This is squarely centered on the NCAA's enforcement mechanisms. Um, the, the bill they're calling this the NCAA Accountability Act of 2021, which is interesting because it's not 2021, as I I think I, I literally did a double double took up. What, what year is it? No, the, the bill uh, centers on a couple of different um, key points. Like this bill would require NCAA inquiries to be completed within eight months of a school receiving notice instead of taking roughly one geological age uh, to complete. Um, says that the new statute of limitations would become two years rather than four years. Uh, that the NCAA can't use confidential sources and that a school can appeal punishments by using a new three-arbiter panel. Uh, this comes from Ross Dellinger's report from Sports Illustrated. So I have a couple of thoughts on this, but because I've been monologuing here for a minute. Brian, what did you think when you saw when you saw this bill? What, what this is different from some of the other ones we've been we've been seeing here. What what, what are your thoughts? Well, right away, knowing that uh, Marsha Blackburn was was one of the co-sponsors, uh, like you said, uh, kind of earning some brownie points back home, certainly with, with Tennessee and Memphis under investigation. I'm sure that was not the, the complete reasoning why she's the, the, the lead co-sponsor in this one. But uh, I'm sure that yeah. is at least in the back of her mind. That, that was the first thing that kind of came to mind. But, um, you know, this is a, another case, you know, right, where the lax NCAA leadership coming out of Indiana, Indianapolis uh, under Mark Emmert, this is coming back to bite them, right? You know, you're having Congress, maybe it doesn't end up, you know, passing in, in, in this form. Um, you know, maybe it doesn't end up by even making it to the to the floors of the, of the, of the Senate. But like this, this kind of these kind of bills, these kind of investigations, these kind of, um, you know, really a, ability for Congress to kind of grandstand uh, and trample over the NCA um, is, is not only born out of frustration, but it, it's born out of inaction from from the NCA looking inside themselves and saying, you know, what, we've got to change. We've got to be proactive about some of these changes. And, you know, look, they're, they're starting to do that, certainly, but they 
have been poked and prodded and, um, you know, to, to get to this point. And it's things like this, you know, and co congressional involvement, as much as they have welcomed it uh, in the NIL space, um, you you really don't want Congress kind of looking over your business all the time. And and this is another set of restrictions that I think a lot of folks in the NCAA, not only in the national office, but I think, um, you know, kind of spreading out through the schools, not too thrilled about kind of seeing. I, I think they, they understand that some of the frustrations are out there, but anytime you actually get legislators involved in this, um, you know, I think we've we've seen some issues uh, certainly popping up around NIL in terms of maybe restrictions being a little bit too much uh, for, for schools liking and, and vice versa. And yeah. uh, I think this is another case where, you know, it's like you be careful what you wish for. Um, when, when you're asking for that congressional involvement, yeah, it might be on just NIL, but it's going to come in, in other forms. And, and this is a perfect example that it's coming in enforcement. That All that's definitely true. Um, I mean, particularly I can I can really understand the frustration with the enforcement mechanism because I, I think your conversation has been similar. I have talked this is one of the very few things in college athletics where it is unanimous that the enforcement process right now sucks. Students hate it. ADs at big schools hate it. ADs at small schools hate it. Reporters hate it. Coaches hate it. Um, and to Congress's credit here. I can understand why you would now think there's no way the NCAA is going to be able to figure this out because like the, the big, you know, bold uh, innovation in, in policing themselves, the IR was the, the IRAP or the, the, yeah, the, yeah, the, the new independent accountability resolution process. It's kind of been a dud. Nobody seems to really like that either. It hasn't been fast. Uh, and, and there's, there's been complaints about that too. So I understand that. Um, that being said, I have some concerns about this. And, and before I dig into that, I, I think it is important for me to come clean with my audience when we're talking about specific bills, because I try not to be very explicitly partisan a lot on this podcast or on my newsletter. Uh, I don't think that that's why you subscribe to Extra Points Related Things. And I, over the years, I have grown tired of of media people like I, I don't i don't think me preaching about social security is going to be effective in, in any way right but you know we're talking about this you deserve to know uh, if this matters for anybody like i'm a democrat uh that's that's not exactly a state secret before i started writing about being a, a reporter i briefly worked in congressional campaigns like my old boss was joe donnelly he was a democrat now he's the ambassador to the vatican um Joe Donnelly was not a Bernie Sanders type Democrat, right? Like, and, and that would be, I think, how I would describe myself too. I'm not in the DSA. There's no Jacobin, anything, any, any anywhere here. And, and quite frankly, like, if I was that kind of person, uh, being a Latter Day Saint and somebody who talks to football coaches and administrators all day, I would have absolutely no friends like that because the, the the intersection of those worlds not great, right? So I understand that part of where I'm coming from comes through that lens. Like that is where I, I typically align myself. I am. I watched a lot of these hearings, man, about NIL bills at the for the feds, for state houses. Talked to a lot of politicians, and one thing that was very clear to me from from watching a lot of those hearings, with a few exceptions, I don't think most lawmakers at the for the the, the U.S. House, the Senate, or most state houses know anything about college sports. And and by that I mean I on, on the federal level I mean like literally most of them are not even college sports fans, but even at the granular level I don't think most of these people really understand uh, how this industry works, how recruiting works, where the money actually goes, and certainly most of these state level NIL bills were not created out of a genuine like political need so much as I have to make sure that I'm helping state you or you know these three or four other people uh, do that. So that raises alarm bells for me whenever I see any kind of federal involvement. And I know like the libertarians are listening to this going like, buddy, what do you hear about literally everything else? I'm like, different podcast. I know that this is the world that I know. This is, this, is, this is what I'm seeing. That makes me a little concerned with if I know more about a subject than the regulators do. And I'm not an especially smart person. That gives me some pause. The other thing that gives me some pause is I don't know if I've read or heard a great legal argument for why – Congress should have potential authority to decide who's on the NCAA Board of Governors uh, or, or, or to, to be able to, to, to specify how they handle some of their adjudication process. I do understand why the federal government could say because of, of through the Sherman Antitrust Act, we have the, abil the ability to regulate athlete compensation. Because of the National Labor Relations Act, we have the ability to potentially regulate how athletes are defined uh, as, as, or classified. 
But for some of this other stuff here, I mean, I guess that's the Commerce Clause, but it doesn't seem to me like that should necessarily be the wheelhouse of the federal government. And when I have that concern, it isn't because I think that the NCAA regulations are good. I think they suck. It isn't because I, I have a lot of confidence in the enforcement procedures. I don't. And, and by and large, I think that that process has not served athletes. But how can I put this in a not super partisan way? Friends, we are not sending our best and brightest to state houses or the U.S. House of Representatives. We have got some people in there that are not serious. And if we create more precedent to allow for more robust federal involvement in third party organizations, even if they deserve it. Um, I don't know if I feel great about making it easier for Madison Crawthorne to maybe get involved in something, something else. You know what I mean? Or some people that like, we got some dipshits that, that, that maybe I don't want, I, I, I don't want to have the excuse to be able to do something that has nothing to do with college sports. Am I a baby libertarian here? Like, am, am, am I off and looking at this? Because th this all feels like a very different uh, congressional um, rationale or, or political rationale to, to get involved in college sports in a different way. Maybe, am I misreading the room? I, I, you know, I think a lot of folks, um, especially out, you know, more fans would, would say that they they kind of want to have their cake and eat it too. Like they, they want, um, you know, Congress looking into, um, you know, investigating their rivals or, you know, it's like they want sort of that that uh, aspect of things where, where Congress can kind of come in and, uh, you know, lay a hand heavy hand against, you know, entities like the NCA. But I, I think they are not understanding completely of that kind of 360 degree picture of, um, you know, like you're saying, th these are not people that have hands on athletics experience outside of. Tommy Tuberville, of, of course, um, which is. Yeah. And, and he's the dumbest one there. Like, he's, and we, we don't. Sorry. 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 No, that, that, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure there are dumb Democrats, too. I, Tommy Tuberville, the one who has the most hands on experience. It's not an accident. It's not the guy leading this legislation. Yes. Sorry, Brian. Yes. No. But yeah. like, I mean, there's there's just not a whole lot of subject matter experience. And like that's that's true with a lot of subjects that Congress is tackling. Yeah. That's why they have hearings. That's why they bring in experts to talk with them. Uh, you know, that's why they have people on staffs that help craft these legislation. I mean, there's there's a reason why there's there's a lot a lot of lobbyists there along K Street, you know, that uh, uh, are, yeah. are designed to kind of make sure that uh, points are heard from various industries. But you know, look, the thing about this as, as well as, you know, sports in, in, in America, especially on, on the college system, it's just so unique. You know, you go to other countries around the world, there is, you know, hands-on involvement and, and there is governmental, you know, hands-on with uh, sports, sporting matters. You have sports ministries at, at, at a lot of places. Yeah. Um, it's you know, a cabinet position in many countries. And, you know, a lot of that's obviously designed toward, you know, geared towards the Olympic movement. And, and certainly they have different models. And, and that just kind of speaks to how, how unique it is here, you know, with, with all these universities. And it, it's a big umbrella. You got to keep that in mind. I mean, you're talking about thousands of schools in under that NCA umbrella. And let's face it, you know, Texas Wesleyan is different from Texas. You know, like there, there are just different, um, you know, models that uh, a lot of these programs have in terms of their athletics. You know, we, we've talked quite a bit on this this program in terms of like a lot of these schools, you know, they're they, they athletics program, not only designed to kind of give that, you know, well-rounded uh, experience in in, uh, in in college life, but it's designed to, to bring in students as well, paying students for, for tuition. And so it, it, it can be difficult to kind of get on the same page with everybody. I think everybody understands that uh, some of these bullet points that uh, you can take out of this, um, you know, bills certainly sound good, like the, the statute of limitations and, and the investigation. Believe me, the NCAA enforcement staff, they would like nothing more than to wrap up cases within eight months. Like the, 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 that has been a source of frustration between membership and the national office. Like th this is not something new that uh, is coming across their desk. But I, I think they're, they're going to resent a little bit of the, the person looking over their shoulder. In this case, it's, it, it, it is Congress. And uh, you know, this this has a chance to maybe get off the rails uh, a little bit. Let, let's face it, that, that has certainly been known to happen with uh, some some legislation, uh, not only recently, but uh, certainly over the last couple of years. And it kind of just speaks to how difficult it is to kind of manage this very unwieldy enterprise, especially when there's not strong leadership at the top. That is is, is certainly true. Like I, I when I you're right, when I look at this, a lot of the things do sound good. And I don't know if maybe there is a way to um, force some of these changes or implement these changes without creeping executive power or or without establishing precedent that might have something different that, does, that doesn't impact college athletics. Maybe. Um, 
this news has been out for 24 hours and I did not go to law school. So I'm, I'm still, you know, at, you know texting people and, and, and asking around. Um, the, 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 the biggest red flag, I think, is, is the stuff about the NCAA Board of, Board of Governors. But I, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I, I, I have some concerns. The other concern that I, I would have, and this was something that the, the, a staffer pointed out to me, is you've got uh, multi, lots of different kinds of people are interested in political action about college sports at the moment. And the NCAA actually wants some of this because they want NIL national clarity. They they want uh, some safe harbor for antitrust lawsuits. They want to be able to establish some some, – clear up some regulatory uncertainty in transfers and name, image, and likeness and and athlete compensation. And and ultimately, they need Congress to provide that. What I have heard is if we – if this particular bill passes, and quite frankly, if Booker and Blackburn are both in favor of it, I think you can get 60 votes. Um, uh, you know, maybe not a hundred, but I, I did, that that makes makes it seem like that's that that's more possible than other things. But the concern that I've heard is if you do that, then Congress's ability to revisit college sports for NIL or healthcare or collective bargaining or some of these other issues will be diminished, especially because Democrats are likely to lose control of at least the Senate and 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 potentially the House uh, as well. And then the appetites for engaging in some of these other issues is going to diminish significantly. So there, you know, beyond, hey, I don't know if this is Congress's purview concerns, there may also be, I don't know if taking this deal, which will help a small number of students, will, it will, will diminish Congress's ability to potentially help lots more students in, in college sports. I don't know enough to say if I agree with that definitively right now, because it's early, but that is something else to think about if you're looking at this from maybe a more progressive or a more expansionist uh, line, line, of, line of thinking. Um, that's I, I, I mean, there's there's going to be another hearing today uh, uh, from from some of the northeastern Democratic folks, and I, I imagine we'll hear some more about this over the final four weekend. Something something else to monitor. But to your your earlier point, though, none of this would have happened if y'all had fixed your shit a decade ago. Um, if, if, if people in Indianapolis knew how to establish and actually execute an enforcement mechanism that happened quickly uh, and, and, and impacted more of the specific actors and not people that came to campus six years later, Marshall Blackburn wouldn't be up uh, in, in, in front of the, the Capitol steps railing about you. Maybe somebody else might, but you, you have made this bet. That's a fair thing to say, right? Yeah, and I, I think it's going to be interesting, too. You know, this is Final Four week, and I'm just going to be interested to see. You know, Mark Emmert usually gives a, kind of a state of the NCAA there, uh, and it's, it's going to be in New Orleans, and, and I, it's going to, he's going to be asked about this. You know, like, what is his his response, uh, you know, going to be to not only this law, but really the, all the, the threats, the external threats the NCAA is facing right now. That, that to me, is going to be, you know, really his biggest challenge uh, as we kind of move through this transformation process. And, you know, I mentioned the Board of Governors earlier. I mean, like, uh, there are people within NCAA membership that, that do not like the composition of the board of governors as con, you know currently constructed. They want more student athletes on there. They want you know more representation across the conferences. You know, not not every conference is is on there. There are um, you know certainly oh yeah certainly several that aren't several uh, you know conferences are, are especially now nowadays where where you know transformation is is so um, you know vital for for a lot of these leagues and, and a lot of these schools that maybe are kind of right on that that edge of the line that uh, we'll call it the cut line if you will. Like they they, they want that representation on the on these boards. Uh, not just the, the Board of Governors, but you know, the NCAA board as well. You have these um, certainly new external directors that are uh, also been added in, you know, in, in the last couple of years. And you know, it's, it's, it's always difficult to see, you know, how, how much is, is Grant Hill, you know, really, you know, kind of doing it as part of the NCAA board of governors? How much is, you know, Ken Chenault really, you know, involved in these NCAA matters? We really don't have, a, have an answer to, to that either. You know, we, we haven't had uh, much, much FaceTime or, or much interaction between them because they always you know, kind of do more to, uh, to, you know, more folks uh, from the, the national office. But to me, it, it, it's going to be fascinating to follow because, you know what, this this topic is not going away. And uh, not only is Mark Kimmer going to get asked about it this weekend, but um, it, he's going to con- get continued to ask about it until ultimately either legislation passes or, um, you know, we, we kind of have uh, a, a reach a point to where it's time to blow it all up. Listen, it's about time someone called Grant Hill to account for his crimes. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely kidding about that. I would love for someone to put a microphone in front of his, his face and ask about his work on the NCAA board. Grant, if you want to talk about it, my, my email is matt at extrapointsmb.com. Love to have you on the show um, or, or, or anybody else for that matter. I will be in New Orleans 
over the weekend, I will do my best to track down Mr. Emmer. I'm going to be trying to track down a bunch of other people, uh, but to t- not just about transformation stuff, my legal stuff, but also to, you know, as a, as a source gathering network gathering thing to help make this podcast at extra points better, uh, over the next several weeks. You're right. Part of the tension with Transformation Committee and with what's happening in Washington, D.C. and other places is a lack of complete representation, particularly among smaller conferences. I'll tell you what has much better and broader representation across the full spectrum of college athletics. That's right. Our title sponsors at Home Field Apparel. Uh, We did a whole podcast with them last week, actually, to kind of really get into the weeds about uh, what actually happens when a uh, how how uh, sponsorship works, how licensure works, how you're able to to turn around something like St. Peter's in a couple of days and now be create one of the most beloved shirts uh, across the college sports internet, a shirt that I, I think you're wearing right now, Brian, if I if I'm not mistaken. Look at that strut of destiny. I, I am wearing my vintage BYU shirt today um, because I was told if I buy any more home field things without giving some away. <laughs> There is going to be a conversation in the, in the Brown family house, but um, there's there's the full spectrum, right? Like Big Twelve school, the opposite of a Big Twelve school. You can find them both uh, on home field. Um, looking at this, like you have most Power Five institutions. Um, I don't think I'm telling too many tales here out of school, but. Maybe there's a couple of Power Five institutions that are not currently uh, partners with Homefield that uh, may potentially become future partners of Homefield for big new season, big new Saturday season four. But while you're waiting, you want some big schools that you know they've got those. But if you want Vermont, if you want Wright State, Wayne State, uh, Maryland, that's a that's a small school, right? Uh, all of those are are, are part a part of uh, part of the Homefield family. And when you grab your first order at Homefield Apparel, whether that's a T-shirt, a crew neck, a hoodie, um, some sweatpants, uh, they're not just doggers now. You can I think you can get Purdue sweatpants and St. Peter's sweatpants. You can get a peacock on your pants in this economy. Yes, you can. And when you buy all of those, use promo code Extra Points to save fifteen percent off your first order at Homefield Apparel. Last quick note: one of the exciting things I think about the past couple of episodes is I have uh, been very explicit and said, my friends, Romans, countrymen, low major athletic directors, lend me your ears. If you want to get your stuff on home field, shoot me a note. Let me make an introduction. I can tell you four schools have since done that, uh, including three in division one. Hopefully things get turned around pretty quickly, but if you are a fan of a, uh, maybe a mid major in the NEC or the Southland or, you know, a a pure conference, um, maybe those conversations are starting. And if you're listening and you're thinking, well, why the heck does the Colorado school of mines or Wayne state get to have something on this, on this wonderful website that these dorks talk about on their podcast. And my school doesn't brother, we can get your stuff on there too. Or at least I, I can't promise that, but I can put you in touch with the people who can. Uh, my email is matt at extrapointsnb.com. Let the world see your ridiculous logos from the 1950s. Let's put them on a T-shirt and sell them to college sports nerds. Sounds like a great idea. It does. And, uh, you know, it, it's funny because this this past week uh, we, we also had uh, some Vandy's athletic director and, and a few folks uh, from from uh, Vanderbilt. They recently launched a, a rebrand. It was interesting to kind of go through that, uh, follow along that process. You can catch that interview on, on Collegiate Sports Connect. And uh, you look, they, they said, you know, they kind of went back through and they said they had logos they had never even seen before from from you know, the 50s and 60s. And, and um, you know, they were trying to clean up a, a lot of their brand identity and, and their marks. But... I know, as important as it is to the current schools to, to clean all that stuff up. Some of us fans really want to see those cool, cool logos that have never been seen before or, you know, are, are out of sight, out of mind, because you know what? Everybody loves cool logos. Everybody loves a com- comfortable shirt. And that is why there's home field apparel. Yeah, I, I don't. The Internet really had some strong feelings about the new Vanderbilt rebrand. Um, uh, those are feelings I don't really personally share. I, I, I don't I don't know. I think people are going to complain about every kind of rebrand. Um, but everybody has cool stuff from the, the 50s and 60s and sometimes the 80s when, when maybe brand standards are a little bit different that, that are fun, even though I understand maybe why why, why th- those aren't entirely embraced. Um, speaking of Vanderbilt and speaking of some of these low majors, you, you brought up, I think, a question worth talking about, which uh, that is uh, one of the, the more existentialist questions leading into this Final Four. You know, part of what makes this particular Final Four uh, but not just on the men's side, but on the women's side there too. 
so fascinating is that these are all gigantic brands, right? Brands that have been important in, in college basketball for, for decades. And that's generally not the case for a final, especially for a men's final four, there's usually one random like four seed that, that kind of sneaks in or somebody that's, that's more nouveau riche in college basketball. But this is Kansas. The, the, the closest thing to new blood in this world is Villanova. Um, who's won multiple national championships and, and, been, and been, plays in a big conference. has been a big deal uh, mostly for most of our lives. I mean, you got Duke, North Carolina, and Kansas. Um, and this is being pitched as the Blue Blood Final Four, which I think begs the question, uh, you know, first, who, what is a Blue Blood in college basketball? That's, that's obviously a different dynamic in co- than it is in college football, but it has to be a pretty rarefied group. I, I think I saw Bomani Jones say, that the, the basketball blue bloods would be Duke, North Carolina, Indiana, Kansas, UCLA. And that's it. Are we forgetting anybody? Like, is, is that a good cutoff point, you think? I, I think the question might be over whether you would include Indiana in that group. And and obviously there's, you know, a lot of recency and bias, I guess you will, because, uh, I mean, obviously when, when they were under Bob Knight, they were one of the best programs in the country, you know, historically. Um, you know, but even in terms of like winning percentage, you know, they're they're down, um, you know, a lot further down uh, a lot of it because of the, these past couple of years. But, you know, when you're, you're talking about the uh, the Blue Bloods, um, I, I think Kentucky, North Carolina, Kansas, Duke, UCLA, that's the cutoff that to, to me, that's the, the kind of Blue Blood list I would go off on. On, on the basketball side, obviously historical success from national titles, wins, winning percentage, like in, uh, in a lot of programs that simply have not experienced a lot of down years, you know, over the years. I, I think Duke um, you know, certainly more the more more recent uh, of, of that group that have had success, you know, kind of closer to our age, uh, our, our age group. Uh, but I mean, you look at, at Kansas, North Carolina, Kentucky, those are you know, schools that uh, simply have dominated, you know, really from the, from the start of, of NCAA sports and um, really becoming big in, in this country. And uh, the consistent of success, I think, is, is a big part in, in my thinking around who is a blue blood, um, not just the, the overall winning percentage or, or titles won. You know, can, is, is this a program kind of resilient, um, you know, to uh, having a bad coach here or there, you know, having a, a bad athletic department, you know, suffering NCAA sanction. And a lot of these, you, you can truthfully say that that has been the case. It, it's, it's, it's tricky, I think, if we go just by pure wins for, for either sport. Because, in part because like the Paleolithic era for college basketball, just like it was college football, was very, very different. Um, you do have to be consistently excellent. But, you know, I'm, I'm looking – I got the college basketball list here in front of me. Temple has won more games than UCLA. I don't think I'd consider Temple a blue blood. I mean, UCLA did win every national championship, as I believe, roughly 36 times in a row, uh, which, which does change things. So I think it's a mix of not just winning a bunch of games and potentially winning lots of national championships – but the level of cultural import and um, passion and influence that that program has within like the administration and the, the cultural relevancy of the sport, like, you know, basketball and Kansas go back to the, the very beginning, you know, Kansas basketball coaches helped create the modern NCAA tournament. They shaped the NCAA as we know it. It's been a big deal since the thirties um, in a way that even though Notre Dame and or quite frankly, or, or Arizona or Purdue have been excellent basketball programs too. It's not. It's not the same thing. The only other school I could I could think of that I don't know if I'm willing to argue as a blue blood, but I think has some claim to some of this cultural import and in a certain way it might be Louisville. Um, in part, because I mean, multiple national championships, but also like a city school that had cultural relevance in a way that maybe a place like Kansas or Indiana didn't for certain kinds of people. Um, but, but even then, like the, 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 the decades of success or that cutoff point probably, probably would exclude there was a lot. I mean, Louisville, Louisville was in the NAIA, right. When, when Kansas was winning national titles. So I could, I could understand why maybe a fan of one of those schools would say like, absolutely not. Um, I, I would, yeah, I, don't, yeah. I would kind of throw Louisville, um, Villanova, of course, you know, I think Syracuse maybe can even be in that kind of second tier group right behind the Blue Bloods. UConn is another interesting yeah. test case. You know, I think that, you know, the Huskies have, a, you know, especially under Jim Calhoun, I like that they have the national titles. They have, you know, a lot of success recently. But, um, you know, I think they're maybe not quite uh, to the level of consistency that some of the others have, have 
you know, really achieved. So I think you can kind of throw those in there. I mean, there's uh, Illinois is, is another program that does have, they had their ups and downs, you know, they, they've had some success in the past, certainly, but uh, maybe that's kind of the, the, the top of, you know, of the third tier group, but it, it's fascinating to see, um, you know, really, you know, what, what is going to be your cutoff. But I, I think more than anything, it's got to be a select group, right? You know, it really cannot be a, a large group. You know, it has to be two, uh, you know, five, two to five programs that really are the fabric of the sport. Like you're saying, um, you know, I think that, I think that that would be my cutoff list is, is you kind of have kind of have three tiers of, of very good programs, your true blue bloods, um, which let's face it, they also, also all based in, in, uh, with the color blue too. So, uh, I think it uh, is even more appropriate. And then, uh, yeah. you kind of have that second tier where they have national titles. They have had some, some sustained success, but not quite to the level of the others. Um, I think there's a pretty clear demarcation line there, um, you know, between those. I think the only one that can maybe float between them is probably Indiana. And, uh, honestly, I think the last two, two and a half decades have, have really kind of hampered the, the Hoosiers case. Um, you know, sorry to, uh, to Connor and all our home field uh, folks out there, but, uh, like I, I kind of feel like Indiana's pulled a little bit back from the pack. Um, yeah, can can you can you lose this spot? I I mean, even though like Indiana hasn't been like well, okay, so okay, so you mentioned yeah, losing yeah. the spot. I think if you did this conversation in football, and, and we can, we can get into that as well. But well, that that's that that was the segue. It's like you read the show notes. Uh, you, it's, yeah. it's like Nebraska. You know, like if if this were ten years ago, you you would probably include Nebraska in there. And now I'm I'm definitely not including Nebraska as a, as a quote unquote true blue blood. You know, I think that that is a select group. And as good as the Cornhuskers have been, you know, recent success and, and lack thereof, you know, I think it's kind of pulled them out of that group a little bit and and brought them further from the pack of, of you know the programs that have really distinguished themselves i think indiana is, is kind of in a similar you know manner they're kind of on the way down you have others like yukon and Villanova on the way up maybe they can join them with another national title um you know and, and kind of rethink their case but i, I think this is you know uh, kind of fluid uh, a little bit even though there is kind of that um you know line where, where you kind of know it where you see it that's that to me is kind of the case when it comes to blue bloods whether it's basketball or any other sport Let's talk. Let's talk about the football list there for a little bit. Um, I think why don't why don't we start with maybe the obvious ones, and then maybe you you can kind of let me know where you think the proverbial cutoff line is. Football football is different because there's a large group of schools that have been as successful, enjoyed a lot of success in our lifetimes that I think would have absolutely no claim to being a blue blood at all because their history started soon. Like I'm sorry, there's nobody in the state of Florida that's a blue blood. Your fo- football in that state did not exist prior to like 1972, except at Florida A&M. So like we can eliminate all those right off the bat. I would so Michigan, we would both agree. Yeah, football. Yeah, literally has won more games than anybody else. I mean, granted, haven't been at the elite elite in a minute, but you know has has that pedigree. Ohio State, without a doubt. Alabama, without a doubt. Notre Dame. Without a doubt. Do you include Texas? No. Do you include Oklahoma? Absolutely. Like, like you, you, you mentioned, like yeah. absolutes. I, I would put almost Oklahoma at the top of that list, um, along with Ohio State. I think those two kind of just historical success, the the amount of times that they've not only won national titles but the sustainability of those programs, um, you know, has has been huge. And uh, to me, that is, uh, you know, really a a case of, of the you know just true blue bloodiness. You know, I, I don't know how, how better to describe it because, you know, look, Oklahoma, whether it's, uh, you know, outside of the John Blake era, you know, really the, they've had like a three or four decade run. They have the, the record for, for most wins. Um, you know, obviously Ohio State, you know, just uh, being able to survive coach after coach and still win at a high level. I think those kind of, those two, you know, more than any of these other programs also have, you know, kind of some inherent natural advantages as well, just uh, in terms of the, the infrastructure surrounding them, um, you know, from a whole state you know, really, uh, that, that have kind of risen up, you know, Alabama, they've got to deal with Auburn. They've got to deal with a lot of the other, you know, SEC powers, um, you know, versus Ohio state and others. Um, you know, that, that kind of does and no offense to the, the Cincinnati's out there, the Akron's of the world. Um, you know, they're, they're no, just, we, we, look, I have a fence for the Akron's of the, please don't even don't. Yeah, we can we can crap on them. They're, they're they're clearly not a peer to Ohio State. But you know, I, I think you know, like I would mention USC in there as well. You know, just the the, the yeah, national yeah. titles, the Heisman trophies, the the amount of NFL draft picks. Like they're they're certainly the the flagship brand. Um, you know, probably 
west of the Mississippi outside of Oklahoma. And so, um, yeah, that would be kind of my list would, would be Alabama, Notre Dame, Ohio State, Oklahoma, USC and, and Michigan. I think that there's the cutoff right there. And you could argue, um, you know, for for some up and coming powers to, to join that list. I think if you're kind of looking more near term, you'd maybe include LSU in that list. But they have not had the success, you know, before. Oh, I, I wouldn't include LSU at all. Well, like I, that, I wouldn't if I, yeah. if we're just talking general kind of college football blue bloods. I, I wouldn't put LSU on that list. But my, but if you're like only saying last twenty to thirty years, I think LSU might have a case. But they're kind of one of the the nouveau riche, uh, you know, new bloods, if you will, along with Florida State, Miami, Florida, you know, that have had success. You know, really more the last uh, two or three decades that uh, have made their case recently for their inclusion. Because you go back through their history. LSU just had a lot of down years. Florida had a lot of down years. They were nothing until you're really Steve Spurrier arrived. But, um, you know, maybe you can go back a little bit further than that. Um, you know, the same with Florida State. I mean, you look at uh, that program uh, before Bobby Bowden. I mean, they were, uh, you know, really a, an afterthought, you know, nationally, not just nationally, but regionally as well. So I think the the his, history and, and sustained success really at the highest of levels, you know, really has kind of that clear cut uh, line in football as well. Um. I'm trying, I'm trying to think like, I, I am, I have some sympathy if a fan wanted to, to argue for a slightly more expanded football list to include Nebraska. I mean, it, th- like that second tier is, would be like Nebraska, Penn state, Texas, and maybe Tennessee or Georgia. And then from there, I think there's a very significant gap. Like I, 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 we kind of forget about it because Tennessee has been mostly, but uh, for the last 12 years plus they've been bad for almost the entire like really internet era but like prior to the expanded sec and certainly in like the paleolithic era of college football tennessee was amazing and and, and that, that that fan base exists but but, but like it, it's easy to forget for a lot of the teams that are very good now florida texas a&m clemson auburn um and especially anybody out west not named usc they went decades without anybody caring or, or, or without with, or with you not really being a, a thing at all. Co- class mobility in college football is a funny thing because in a, you know, the American myth, right. is this idea that listen, if you work hard and you win a few more games each year, you can kind of drag yourself up into another station. And um, that may be true in some elements of American society, but college football really is an aristocracy. Like where you are, the most important factor is what kind of friends you made back in 1950. And it takes a long time to piss away inherited wealth and status, um, even if everything's changed around you. And uh, the floor can drop out pretty quick and you can be a, a successful program for decades and then turn into Syracuse and 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 kind of be washed away from, from the national consciousness. And the, the few schools that I think have really permanently elevated themselves the floridas oregon maybe oklahoma state a couple other ones has required an enormous amount of money from someone else to just drop bags and then make successful decisions year after year after year um which isn't really that's not really mobility that's that's making friends with the right energy tycoon or or billionaire to kind of to finance some of this stuff even even tcu to some extent um, well, I mean, you, you mentioned yeah. Texas earlier. I mean, look, I, I would not include them in the Blue Bloods. Yes, I, maybe if we're talking about like the short list of, of best jobs. Yeah, sure. Texas is probably going to be on there. They, they have the infrastructure there. They have a tremendous amount of money, as we know, is because they, they end up topping the, the revenue list uh, seemingly pretty much every year. And and look, the, the fact of the matter is, though, they, they've struggled at times. You know, it, for every Mac Brown run of, of 10 you know, double digit win t- seasons they only won one national title under him you know and and before that you have to go back to 1970 before they win so like you know the, the, as much texas fans you know like to, to puff their chest out as as being kind of that flagship program they, they also have kind of underperformed you know relative to what they they could be what they are um you know historically i think they're they're kind of in that group with the nebraskas and, and lsu's of the world you've certainly seen clemson and, and georgia come up um you know not only just recently but uh, i mean look they, they had success back in the 80s um you know the they went away a little bit, but, uh, you know, there's still, um, you know, just some, some unique tiers, I think, in college football that uh, because it is such such a regional sport compared to kind of the more 
national scene on the, on the basketball with the tournament, bringing, you know, folks together from all around the country. I think it's just, just football is it's different. Plus you, you go back, you had multiple, you know, split national titles. You had the, the pole era was, was messy. You go back even, um, you know, to the, to the forties. I mean, you, you can make a case to where army is right there with, with a Clemson, with a Georgia, with a Penn state, you know, uh, you know, Navy, you go back, they, they've had Heisman trophy winners. They've had, um, you know, success you know, in terms of the, the top of the pole. So, um, you know, yeah. it, it, it's, it's a different, Brian, Brian's right. Navy and Penn state are the same. Uh, <laughs> if you want to talk to Brian about it, his Twitter handle no. is no. I mean, like Pitt, you know, like we, we make our jokes about yeah. uh, Pat Darnuzzi's Pitt and, and getting contract extensions until 2030. But like, you know, certainly, you know, my, like our parents era, like Pitt football was a huge deal. Like they were they were not only churning out pros, but you're talking about like, you know, high end Heisman Trophy winner pros. Uh, you obviously had some national titles mixed in there. Um, you know, that that was a destination program, you know, certainly. And, um, you know, I think Michigan State, you forget the history of Michigan State, it was certainly overshadowed uh, w- within their own state boundaries by by. Uh, big brother there and in, in, in the Wolverines but like that they had a hit pivotal role to play in, in the history of college football and uh you know I think they're kind of in that mix where they're the second or third tier and yeah it, it's kind of hurt them a little bit in terms of how they go up and, and yo-yo at times in in um, you know modern history but uh they've had a you know great run of success uh w- over multiple uh coaches the last couple of years certainly with uh you know going from Nick Saban to Mark D'Antonio making the playoff under him certainly Mel Tucker uh, bringing that program back yep. and, and getting that like there's a lot of history there at, in, in East Lansing. And, you know, there's another program that uh, not only the, the past, uh, you know, kind of contributing to their, their, their status, but also the, the, the current uh, nature of, of where they kind of stand in, in the pecking order. If you have strong opinions about what constitutes a blue blood and where we screwed up, my email is Matt at extra points, MB.com. My Twitter handle is at Matt Brown EP. Uh, I am happy to listen to your feedback I am also happy to talk and, and be persuaded that my uh, my 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 political take here was incorrect. Um, because I, I might I might be wrong, right? This is I'm speaking more out of I texted like three different people and like my immediate visceral reaction, um, rather than I have pondered this bill for three days at my mountaintop, and and this is the enlightenment that I have received. I'm I'm, I'm not there yet. I could be wrong. Maybe some maybe somebody here can talk me out of it. Well, are, are we going to get into like uh, women's basketball? What, what would be your blue bloods on on, on the women's basketball front? I, I'd be curious on that. Like I, I feel like that's you know, a much shorter so list. Here, yeah, I, I'm not an expert either, and I would I, honestly I'd love to talk to somebody who it, just because like I don't really know who the dominant programs were before the NCAA got involved, or or or, or when, when things were run by outside entities beyond like the, the modern structure we have. I, I my my initial blush is like it's UConn and Tennessee, or are, are the two that I think of. But also like my institutional memory doesn't really go farther back than 1994. Um, well, I, I would definitely throw a lot of tech or, on there. You know, Louisiana Tech. If you go oh, back in the yeah. day, like they, you know, speaking of before the NCAA tournament kind of really came into you know existence. I mean, they had a ton of great squads. You know, even I think the. Either the first NCAA women's uh, tournament or, or the second, you know, like they, they ended up winning it. So like they they have NCAA titles, uh, obviously a huge history of success there in, in, in Ruston with, uh, you know, the, the amount of winning that they've done. Um, I think you, you kind of do have that kind of top two that have certainly separated themselves from the pack in, in UConn and Tennessee. But uh, another you know, final Baylor. Maybe, you know, I no. think for, for the modern game, maybe you can kind of include them, but uh, I'd probably put them on the, on that second tier. I think it'd be an interesting conversation to where, where the cutoff is, because I think Stanford would have a case if you're talking about women's basketball, yeah. uh, you know, Tara Vandiver, I think this is her 14th final four. You know, she has national titles to her name. Um, you know, like the, that, that's a certainly an athletic department that has a history of, of really high level success. It, it is the case in, in, in uh, basketball and really uh, outside of UConn and Tennessee, you know, out before these last couple of years, you probably would have point, pointed towards Stanford being that kind of third program, um, you know, that has had the, the recent his, history of, of success at the, the women's game. So be a little bit more of a different conversation and certainly a, a more compact uh, level of blue bloods, whether you're talking about you know, women's basketball or even women's soccer. You know, I think there's, um, you know, case, yeah, it's, it's North Carolina. And then it's like debate three or four others that have won national titles recently. Um, that might be a good other newsletter. Or an, another conversation for some of these other ones here. Please, please, please yell at me. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it. Stan, Stanford does make, would make more sense than Baylor. You're, uh, you're absolutely right. I, I, the fourth one, I don't know. Maybe it's Notre Dame. Um, yeah. Maybe, yeah. If you, if you had to pick four. Um, quick couple of programming notes uh, to let everybody know here that if you listen to this this far along, because I am traveling this weekend, 
there will not be a second going for two this week. Um, it, just logistically, I, I can't verify that I'm going to be in a place with good enough Wi-Fi to be able to sit down and record. I am going to be in New Orleans next Thursday through Tuesday morning. So if you are going to be around, if you if you live in New Orleans, if you're in the 504, or if you're going to be around for the Final Four, drop me a line. I'd love to, I'd love to come talk with you. Like That's literally the number one reason I'm going, is, is, is source gathering stuff. Um, so we're going to run a mailbag while I'm gone. Uh, we're going to run a couple of other things, and then we, we, will, we will get back in, uh, in action when I get back. Um, I am at Matt Brown EP and uh, on, on Twitter. Last quick note, beyond subscribing to everything on Collegiate Sports Connect and D1 Ticker and everything else, uh, we do have a few more open sponsorship s- spots for extra points for ads and also on this podcast for mid- late April and coming into May. So if you'd like to reach an audience of thousands, if, uh, upon thousands of college athletics insiders, practitioners, leaders, super fans, students, and athletes at an affordable rate. That is sales at extrapointsmb.com. So we can shill for something else beyond just home field. I'm going to shill for home field, even if this contract expires. I'm I'm, I'm going to do that. You guys can't stop me, but I would be happy to talk about other things as well. Uh, Brian, what would you like to plug before we let these fine people go? Well, I, I would just first of all say, you know, if, if Breaking Tea Company wants to come in and like top home fields offer by, by twice, I will totally show for you guys as well. You know, I, I'm I, we are capitalists here uh, on this fair podcast. And so uh, we, we can be bought. You know, I'm just just pointing it out there. Sales at extrapointsmb.com. Uh, no, we've got a lot of cool stuff going on on uh, Collegiate Sports Connect and D1 Ticker. If you're not already a subscriber, uh, certainly sign up for, for the D1 Ticker newsletter. That is the best way to kind of catch all the connect videos, all the extra points, all the news that is happening. I mean, we just saw um, you know, while we were recording this podcast, you know, the Pac-12 is is uh, exiting their headquarters. There's um, you know, fronts on that. We You just talked with some folks uh, surrounding the, the construction boom uh, in college athletics and lack thereof in, in certain cases. I mean, we, we're, we've uh, talked with Vandy about their rebrand. Um, you know, I just uh, had a, an interesting conversation with somebody about uh, the NFT space and uh, where they kind of see that yeah. with, with college athletics, uh, a couple of NIL collectives things like I just a very diverse group of of um, you know content conversations uh, surrounding college athletics and uh, something that whether you're a fan of of uh, things or just uh, kind of in the industry itself it is a definitely a way to uh, connect with us and uh, you know get uh, get some of the latest uh, info and uh, analysis uh, in, the, in the college space we um we're gonna have another story on collegiate sports connect actually talking to entities that helped to do the rebrand at st peter's which will be up later this week um, I did a bunch of other interviews about the NIL space, talked to a couple of different companies, CEOs uh, that are on there as well. I definitely, definitely uh, think that's worth your time and it's free and it's free. Uh, everyone, thank you so much here for, for following along and, and watching. Uh, feel free to give us those five-star reviews on Spotify or Apple or wherever else you're getting these podcasts. I will be in your ears next week, but I'll still be on the Extra Points newsletter uh, every day uh, until I get back. Thanks for, thanks for sticking with us, everyone. Catch up with you again soon.